While you're taking your seats, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41 will be our text for this evening. Have you ever had the opportunity to stand in front of a massive waterfall? Maybe on a family vacation. Maybe some of you have been out to Niagara Falls and you just stand before this monster of a waterfall, of this giant wonder. You must scream to the person next to you because the the roar of the waters are so loud. Maybe you haven't been to Niagara Falls or maybe someplace up in New Hampshire, some of our favorite places up Falling Waters Trail and this massive 90-foot waterfall that just takes your breath away. You feel very small in front of this massive force that we see. And when I think about the power of water, it truly does take our breath away. It is a massive power. And tonight, as we will consider here a very common story of Jesus calming the storm, it is a story of great power, of significant power, of a power that we have never seen before. But I want you to think about that waterfall and just how magnificent it is and how small you feel standing by it. Follow along with me in Mark chapter 4, picking up in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey Him. Father, bless the preaching of Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 4 in its entirety is a snapshot. It is a day in the life of Jesus. The beginning of chapter 4, well, we were there a long time ago, but if you would flip in your Bible, if it's on that same page, you would notice that chapter 4 begins with Jesus teaching by the side of the sea. Well, a great crowd arises, and so Jesus is forced off of the side of the sea. He gets on a boat, and he pushes out to sea a little bit. Jesus is, a, is, the, is the master scientist. He understands all the laws of nature and physics, and he does know that if he is to be off the water, his voice will travel and carry across water to even a greater um, Uh, degree, so the larger the crowd, they can hear him. Now he's in Capernaum in the northern area of the Sea of Galilee, 
And so up there, there's, it's surrounded by mountainous area. So it's almost this amphitheater-like setting. If you could see it, there's mountains in the background. There's a large crowd on the shore. There's Jesus in a boat. He is sitting down, and he is teaching. This is how the day goes for Jesus. And he begins teaching in many parables that Luke would re- or Mark would record for us. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us four. But it was not just four. But Mark gives us this summary snapshot. We recognize that the Apostle John rightly said in chapter 125 of his gospel. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we have a snapshot of, the, of a day in the life of Jesus in his teaching ministry. Notice here in verse 35, the setting that this takes place. We read on that day, on that same day that began in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus began teaching. Jesus has just now, as we enter this scene, finished this long day of preaching and teaching. And we notice, what does he, what does he do? He requests to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Depending exactly where this is that he wants to go, it would be either a four-mile or a 13-mile journey across the sea, or a sail across the sea, which is no sea, it's a lake, it's a freshwater lake. But it is referred to as the Sea of Galilee. There's nothing ordinary here about Jesus' request that we would see. The ideal times for travel across the Sea of Galilee, as, will, as is probably of any time for sailing, would be early morning or evening. The afternoon winds would often pick up. The geography, as I had mentioned previously, but the geography of this region has led many to conclude that fierce windstorms were common on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is like a, a basin with high mountains to the north and the east and the, and the west surrounding it. And one, one writer would note that storms would often come up from the southwest of the Sea of Galilee and move upward. Jesus is at the more northern point right now, so his trip by which he is going to sail is going to be southward. And so what we have here is after a long day of preaching, Jesus requests to get in the boat and let's go to the other side to conclude the day. So as they push off these disciples here, the long shadows that were cast by the sun, giving way to the sunset, twilight is now setting in, the sun is setting, giving way to night. Mark, unlike the other gospel writers, records certain details that, the, that Luke and Matthew don't, that they took Jesus as he was, that there were other boats with him. No doubt Mark is giving us a firsthand account from Peter who was on the boat. And so a small number of boats here on this ordinary day, after a long day of preaching and teaching, Set off from the shores of Capernaum, and a tired Jesus finds a comfortable place to sleep in the rear of the ship. Sounds like it's going to be just a nice journey. A few observations that we should make from verses 35 and 36. 
even concerning the setting and the information that Mark gives us, we must recognize first and foremost is that Jesus is human in every way that we are. You see the humanity of Christ here. He is tired. Not only that, we see that Jesus relies on natural means for travel in this way. He needed rest. He needed to refuel. He needed to recharge. After a long day of output, Jesus needed to rest. We must conclude that Jesus was like us in every way, yet without sin. Jesus is 100% human. So this is the setting. Disciples on the water, Jesus in the boat, sleeping. And I want us to notice here in verse 37, the conflict. The conflict that arises. We are very familiar with this text. We've probably, if we've grown up in the church, we saw it on the flannel board before we ever learned to read it. But don't let the familiarity take away the wonder of what we can learn from this. And oftentimes we might have heard a point that is not true. I'll just kind of say it right off the bat. This account is not about Jesus calming the storms of your life. So before we would try to make ourselves the main character of this story, we shouldn't. Jesus is the main character of the story. Jesus is the main point of this account, as we shall see. But notice the conflict that happens. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling Filling. If you have the NIV, it is a furious windstorm that arises. This word here, great, megas, from which, that's the Greek word from which we get the word mega. It is a mega storm that Mark says here. The intensity meaning that is far above average. It's not just a normal storm that might have hit the Sea of Galilee. This is the mega storm that has now just kind of come out of nowhere. These are the storms that would sweep up from the south. And then there's this incredible storm. The disciples are struck by this storm as though it is from out of nowhere. Waves are not just crashing up against the boat. They are crashing over the boat and into the boat. As we would read that the boat was already filling. So what we must conclude at this point right now is this is not good. This is not a good situation. Any logical person can conclude this, that the last place you want to be is on a boat in the middle of the night on a vast body of water without a flashlight, having waves crashing into the boat, and you're taking on water. I want you to put yourself in their soaked sandals for a minute. This is scary. This is a scary situation. You have no Garmin. There is no GPS. The Coast Guard's not coming for you. Death is knocking at the door. And what is the attitude of the disciples? It's fight or flight mode right now. It's all hands on deck. Grab a bucket. Grab a bail. We need to bail water. We need to bail for our lives. Four of these men are fishermen. They've spent their life on the Sea of Galilee. If it wasn't that big of a deal, they would have said, hey, calm down. We've got this. We've been down here before. We've down this road. No, you don't see Peter, James, and John saying, hey, this is just a storm. We, we've, we can. This is scaring the seasoned fishermen. 
We're bailing water or we're going to die. You, you also have Philip. I don't know if you remember as we did our study of all the, the apostles, but Philip, he's the logical one. He's always calculating. You would think, well, maybe Philip thought, hey, why don't we just go ask Jesus for some help? I mean, you have seen what he's been able to do through these first four chapters. Maybe we should ask him. No, we don't see that either. But they do begin to look around, no doubt. And the question arises, wait a minute, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? There's this megastorm, this superstorm, this furious storm. We need all able-bodied men to help us bail out this water. It's coming in faster than we can get it out. How could he be sleeping in a storm like this? What does this remind you of? Reminiscent to maybe an Old Testament character? Doesn't it remind you of Jonah? You see, Jonah is a type of Christ. And every type is flawed, remember that. But we can think back on Jonah. Jonah being a type of Christ, except in Jonah, he's weary because he's running and avoiding the Lord's work. Whereas Jesus is weary from doing the Lord's work. Both asleep in the midst of a storm. So verse 38 we see here, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Another detail that Mark would like to add for us, he had a comfy place to lay his head. And they woke him, and they said to him, this is, a, this, this is serious, pay attention to what they say to him. First, they call him teacher. So they address him respectfully before they royally disrespect him. Teacher. And then they ask the question, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus, do you not care about us? You see, they attributed the inaction to lack of compassion. Put yourselves again in their soaked sandals. Think about what could have been going through their minds in this moment. They just set off to sea. They'd spent a long day. It seemed calm. Everything was going fine. And then, boom, this megastorm comes. And it's fight or flight. This thing comes out of nowhere. Everybody needs to be helping so that together we might be able to make this out alive. Here's Jesus sleeping. Do you even care about us? They're thinking, come on, man. We've given up everything for you. We go where you tell us to go, Jesus. We do what you tell us to do. We've been catching heat from the Pharisees and our family. Look, Peter's got a wife and maybe a kid. And we're going to go out like this? We're going to die out here in the, in the Sea of Galilee like this? This is what you called us to? Is it all about you, Jesus? We would like to sleep too. It is nighttime and we've been up all day. Do you even care about us, Jesus? Now, before we play judge, jury, and executioner on these disciples, we should probably take a look in the mirror. How many times have we either verbally or in our hearts asked the question, God, do you even care? We're in a circumstance, we're in a trial, we're in a difficulty in our lives, and it just seems like we can get nowhere. God, do you even care? Are you even concerned about me? For the disciples and for us, I want us to remember this, that circumstances 
do not define who we are. They only serve to reveal it. In a heated situation, I lost my temper. That's because in that circumstance, it revealed who you are. In that fearful situation, I I, I had no faith. It's revealing our weaknesses and our character flaws. We're battling fears. We battle anxiety. We battle worry. And we just feel like, God, I am hurting right now. I need comfort. I need deliverance. I need peace in this moment. I need assurance. And if we don't hear something in that moment, the question becomes, God, do you even care? How come you're not listening? Oh, don't associate silence with a God that doesn't listen. We can more or less walk in those soaked sandals than judge the men in those sandals. Now remember also here in this moment, the disciples do not know what's going to happen next. So they're looking down at Jesus under the stern of this little fishing vessel that holds 15 people, 26 feet wide, or 26 feet long. It's not huge. One single sail, one little mast, rocking back and forth, getting crashed on. Do you even care? We know what happens next. We know how this story ends. And we know from the whole of Scripture how it all ends. Yet sometimes we still ask the question. We see in this moment that Jesus kindly does not answer them. Jesus doesn't answer the question verbally, but we know the answer. Do you even care? From the whole of Scripture, we could see that if Jesus was to answer this question, it might sound something like this. No, I do care. And that's why I was sleeping. Because in your desperation, you revealed your heart and you had to face the fact that you were unable to save yourself from the storm. Had I not allowed this storm to bring you to the breaking point, you would not have been able to learn the lesson that I'm about to teach you. Many times we must be brought to the breaking point to learn the lesson. The disciples did. Jesus doesn't coddle his disciples. God does not coddle his children, but he teaches them. Well, how many times have we in our lives doubted the goodness of God? We can be honest with ourselves. Yes, we have. How many times, like Gideon, do we need proof after proof after proof as though God's word is not enough and God's past faithfulness is not enough? I walk these shoes. I remember... I've shared this. I don't know if I've shared it on a Sunday night or in other times, but I remember early on, 2014, uh, we had just uh, accepted an internship at Quidesset Baptist Church, and we're excited about coming into vocational ministry, and what is this going to look like, and we're newlyweds, and Kate's you know, huge, and Marley's coming in two weeks, and um, so this is July, we have our child, and we're over here in the outreach house, and you know, we're a poor young couple just, you know, trying to serve the Lord and be faithful. And we're getting, it's towards the end of the month and, and, and funds are tight. And we're looking in the, in the cabinet and we're looking at the pantry and we're looking at the bank account. And we're like, hey, it's going to be ramen noodles. It's going to be ramen noodles this week, I guess. And um, we're going to be on rations, but we're going to make it. We're going to make it. And um, 
That's what I'm telling her inside. I'm thinking, oh, man, dude, like I'm the provider, and how's this going to work out? And I'm, I'm fearful, and I, I just want to do a good job. I want to I be a good father. I want to be a good husband. I want to be faithful. And I, I'm, I'm praying, and I'm worried, and I'm worried. Two days later, there's a knock on the door. There's a delivery to the house. There's a huge box from Omaha Steaks. It, anonymous, someone from the church said, hey, you were just really laid upon my heart, and we wanted to bless you. There were five meals in there. There were five days left in the month before payday. It was just a testimony of God's faithfulness as he is caring for his people, and I doubted. And it was one of those situations where it's like, how many proofs do I need? Oh, there's many of those stories along the way. But God is good and God cares for his children. And it was better than ramen noodles. We had a steak. We had a cheeseburger. It was great. Baked potato. So we were thankful. But that's just, another, it's just an example of how we can doubt. In my life, I've doubted the goodness of God. And instead of God chastising me, he convicts me with his, his kindness and his goodness through his people. But anyways, here the disciples are. They're soaked They're out of breath. They're fearing for their lives. And they want Jesus to join in on helping them. They don't expect him to do what he does. But they say, how can you be sleeping? We need your help. All able-bodied men, let's do this. So here's the conflict. Verse 39, the climax. And he awoke. Like, (laughs) is this really happening? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. You see, Jesus rises up, does not answer the question. He comes out from under the platform on the boat. He doesn't grab a bucket to help bail water No, he rises to his feet. The winds and the storm are blowing. He looks it dead in the face and he opens his mouth. There is more power in the spoken word of Jesus than the tireless effort of 12 men. Jesus speaks. He spoke to the sea saying, peace, be still. J.C. Ryle commenting on this as only J.C. Ryle does. He said, those words were the words of him who first created all things. The elements knew the voice of their master, and like obedient servants, were quiet at once. You know what's interesting? When Jesus commanded the storm, in your English translation, there's three words. There's only two words that he spoke there. Sio pao pefimoso, be quiet. Silence, be quiet. When God created the heavens and the earth, his first command that came out of the mouth of God was only two words. Haya or, let there be light. So in two words from the creator God at the beginning, two words from the creator God at the storm, all creation submits to the voice of God. What we see even in this statement right here is the main point of this passage. That Jesus Christ is the divine Lagos. He is the word that became flesh. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mark wants to make something very clear for us to see right now. That when Jesus rebukes this storm, it was immediate and it was complete. It wasn't that the winds began to die down and the waves slowed down. It was all at once. It would be like standing in front of that giant waterfall and it just stopping. We couldn't even imagine. We couldn't even imagine. Interesting. He says, peace, be still. Look at verse 39. And the wind ceased. It stopped. Oh, but there's something else that happened he wants us to know. There was a great calm. Same word. Megas. It was a mega calm. It was above normal. It wasn't the normal calm that you would see. As this storm was so catastrophic, so was this calm. It was so calm it would take your breath away. We were getting out early, say, 4.30 in the morning to go fishing. Get down to the lake and you get out there and nothing is moving. The trees aren't moving. The wind's not blowing. It is calm. It is like you are looking at glass. That doesn't compare to this calm. When Jesus speaks these words, it is as though the wind stands at attention and the waves bow down before their master. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You know what else we call this? A miracle. This is a miracle. A miracle when God suspends the laws of nature, when God rises above the laws of nature, commands nature to do as He says, and it does. So here's the point. All creation submits to Jesus. Let us review. Let us just quickly review even these four chapters. The devils and demons submit. The decrepit and the diseased. The lame and the leper. The winds and the wave. All are under His kingly rule. All authority belongs to Jesus. So we must walk away from this passage with one conclusion. We are engaging with very God, a very God. A passage that begins showing the humanity of Christ ends by exalting the deity of Christ. He is, yes, 100% human, but at the same time, he is 100% God. He is not just like us in a better form. No, as Paul would make it very clear that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. Here's the great miracle. All of God contained in one human body. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Philip says, show us the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what's the lesson to learn from this? We must see here in verse 40, there are two questions. Jesus asks two questions. 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 
Jesus resolves the immediate threat, the storm, in order to address the issue at hand. And he asks, now he asks the questions. Why are you so afraid? Like, Jesus, did you not just see what we were dealing with? Have you no faith? These wind, like, this, this was a megastorm. They might have thought that they did not say that. In fact, they didn't say anything. I want you to put yourself in the boat once again and put on those soaked sandals. How would you answer the question after what you just saw? If you were out there bailing that water and all of a sudden you are standing on the, on the boat in the calmest night you've ever experienced in all your life, speechless, awestruck, bet you could have seen every single star there ever was. There's no light pollution. Terrified. No one dared answer the question because to answer the question, you had to indict yourself. Well, to answer the question, you would have had to say, because my doubt was greater than faith. Because fear took over. Because the emotions of the situation caused me to forget the truth of Jesus' character and ability. They're, now they're terrified, not of the storm, but they were questioning the goodness of this one who has the power over the storms. What's he going to do to us? Well, brothers and sisters, don't let the situations of life drive your theology. Do not be a situational theologian. Remember this, Jesus delights in rescue. He delighted in the rescue of these disciples. Jesus delighted in the rescue of his people. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes, in that time of agony, it wasn't his greatest delight, but the whole picture of redemption, of the covenant of redemption accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he delights in your salvation. He delights to call you brother and sister. He delights to give you his righteousness because he delights in the Father. He delights to call you one of His own. He came to rescue. He is our Redeemer. So do you even care? Jesus could look and say unequivocally, absolutely, and I have demonstrated it, and I have proved it, and it has been sealed in blood. These two questions that He asks, though, they stopped me dead in my tracks in my study. I'm reading through this passage, and we get to... and. Why are you so afraid? And I was thinking, yeah, why were you guys so afraid? Like, have you no faith? Come on, disciples. And then it hit me. No, 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 no. Why are you so afraid? I know why the disciples were afraid. They didn't know what was coming next. I know how the story ends. I've got the book of Revelation. I know how this all ends. And yet, I can be so afraid. And so can you. I was convicted deeply by that question. I am so afraid at times, and it's not even because I'm in a life-threatening situation. We'll get back to that. Notice how this passage ends, verse 41. They were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who, who then is this? 
that even the wind and the sea obey Him. If they're thinking like good Jews, they're going to put their Old Testament cap on. They're going to remember Elijah prayed for no rain, and it was granted. The Lord told Moses to lift up his staff, and the sea would be divided. Joshua spoke to the Lord, and the sun stood still. Satan had to first get permission before he was allowed to send the windstorm against Job's family. So those are kind of like they're thinking, these are all the times in which we've read about nature being kind of suspended. Or, 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 but, but who is this that is before us? He neither prays nor asks permission. He has more power than Elijah, more confidence than Moses, more courage than Joshua, more authority than the evil one. Who then is this before us? We don't have a category. It is very God, a very God, right before their midst. Who then is this man? This is a question that must be asked and answered by everyone in every generation at all times. C.S. Lewis said, quote, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. So how do we respond? How are we to respond? Beloved, there is only one response. We are to respond in faith and trust. And they are inseparably linked. Faith and trust. And we would say to that, amen. Yes, that's our response to Jesus. Well, then why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? There's many reasons. Lack of control. It's disciples. No faith. Weak faith. Uncertainty about the future. You can trust Jesus for your eternity, but what about tomorrow? Do you wake up at night or early in the morning worried about your future, your family, your finances? Why are you so afraid? Spending more time worrying about what we can't keep while all the while losing the things that matter most in this life and the things that last forever? Beloved, why are you so afraid? Is it because people are big and God is small? Because Morals and values of the nation have declined. You're feeling, you feel like you're on the sinking ship called America. America can sink. Jesus reigns. God's throne will not. Remember, the original audience that received this gospel, they were in Rome. And the emperor was Nero. They needed to be faced with that question, why are you so afraid? Brothers and sisters, we're going to be okay. Who cares about 501c3 tax status? We're going to be okay. Remember, the government is upon His shoulders. We're going to be okay. Because Jesus is bigger than anything else. Because the word that comes out of His mouth calms the storms. 
Because all creation submits, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means all that dwell within it. Brothers and sisters, we're going to be okay. And if we're not going to be okay, guess what? We're going to be okay. Remember, the three that went into the furnace. We're going to be okay. We're going to make it. If not, we'll see you on the other side. You see, for the disciples here, what they initially thought was the worst place to be was, in fact, the best place to be. You know the best place to be? The best place to be is on a boat in a storm in the middle of the night taking on water without a flashlight if Christ is near you. If the Creator God is just below deck, you're going to be okay. Christian, I must encourage your heart even now. The safest place that you can be is near to Christ. For it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are little Christ. We are to follow in His ways. The Spirit of Christ dwells within us. We're going to be okay. So, as we would bring this message to a close, I think it would be fitting to hear one more passage written to the same people, but from a different author. As Mark wrote to the Romans, to the Jews in Rome, and to the Gentile there too, the church in Rome, So Paul would write to them and hear these words from the Apostle Paul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We're going to be okay. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The question that we want to be asked is why aren't you afraid? That awesome power of a waterfall that you thought of is nothing more than just a drop in the bucket compared to the power of Christ. And He will hold us fast. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your awesome power displayed in Your Son who by the spoken Word calms the sea and teaches us what it means to live a life of faith and trust. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive me. When we are fearful, when we are afraid because we are looking out at the things around us, Father, increase our faith. Give us a confidence and a boldness to live for You, to give our lives for what You have called us to do. We pray that You would 
Strengthen us now. In Jesus' name, amen.